In this lecture, we're going to finish talking about the immune system. In the first part of the immune system lecture, we talked about the barriers, the first line of defense that our body uses to keep out invaders, and then the second line of defense, which is called innate immunity. And so in this image, you can kind of see what we've already talked about. Some of your antigen-presenting cells um, and phagocytic cells, like macrophages and dendritic cells. Um, some of the substances that are kind of in your humoral or blood um, system that are free, they're not actually cells, like complement. And then other cells that are part of the white blood cells but don't need direction. They work naturally, like the natural killer cell. And then these are some other of those phagocytic cells. So something we're going to end up talking about today then is the relationship between these two systems and the more specific or adaptive part of the immune system. This is where your T cells, B cells, and antibodies come into play. So let's kind of put this all back in context. You might remember this image from last time. You have nonspecific defenses, which include your external barriers like the skin, mucous membranes, tears, saliva, uh, stomach acid, your normal flora, things like that, that kind of just create a barrier for those invaders. And then you have your second line of defense, which is the innate system. This one is the natural system. In fact, far lower um, organisms have these same kinds of components. So this is where you have things like the inflammatory response, your defensive proteins like complement, your phagocytic white blood cells like macrophages and neutrophils and dendritic cells. But some of those play a role in getting the third line of defense, which is a specific type of defense, the acquired or adaptive system because some of those macrophages dendritic cells they actually function to process and present the antigen to the lymphocytes in the acquired system so that we can develop a specific defense so today we'll talk about those major components of the specific response your t and b lymphocytes and antibodies <clears throat> so just as kind of a review we had this slide in the last lecture where I introduced you to the various types of leukocytes or white blood cells. And I went through and gave you information on each of these types of white blood cells that you find in the bloodstream. How many of them you have, for example, the most predominant one is your neutrophils. And then you have um, other ones that are involved in the innate system like the monocytes, which become macrophages or dendritic cells. And then your natural killer cells, which are also part of the innate system. But I kind of put off talking that much about your T and B lymphocytes because they are um, more a part of the acquired system. So let's get more into those lymphocytes. Now I will talk a little bit about natural killer cells today, but I kind of put them in parentheses because they're really a bigger part of the innate system. But there are some T cells that function similar to natural killer cells. So that's why we'll talk about it again briefly. So one of the big things I want you to realize is that while these are both types of lymphocytes, they play a very different role. 
Your T cells are called that because they mature in an organ called the thymus, which is kind of in the upper chest. And your B cells, they remain in the bone marrow. They're all made in the bone marrow, but they remain there to mature. And so that kind of helps in their naming. T for thymus, B for bone marrow. And the big thing to realize about this is that T cells are responsible for your cellular immune response, while B cells are responsible for your humoral immune response. These are those ones that are soluble in the blood or in the, um, the serum, the part of your, the liquid part of your blood. And a big part of this humoral immune response is antibodies. That's because B cells are responsible for making antibodies. Now, each of these types of cells is made to recognize a very specific antigen. We used to think that they would change their recognition after seeing the antigen. They would see it and then become sensitized. What we now know, though, um, and actually have for the past several decades is that they use modular mixing of genes to produce this specificity for an antigen. And many of them will never find their mate, their antigen that they were made for. For example, many of us will never be exposed to malaria. Many of us will never be exposed to HIV or other um, parasites or organisms that aren't native to where you live. And so in those cases, the lymphocytes that were made for those specific antigens, they, they just kind of never do anything. However, if you're exposed to the flu or you're exposed to strep throat, in those cases, those antigens will find their mate in the lymphocytes that you've already pre-made that are meant to be specific for those. Now, another way to um, understand the difference between the T cells and the B cells is to understand which type of invaders they address. Now, the reason that T cells are responsible for the cellular immune response is because they have to attack invaders that are inside of cells. What they end up doing then is attacking cells, cellular response, and causing them to lice, like when viruses invade cells. Whereas B cells are responsible for the humoral response because they make antibodies that attack invaders outside of the cell. When they release these antibodies, they are loose, so to speak, in your bodily humors or fluids so that they can bind with those invaders that are outside of cells. Now let's put this back into context. So we talked before about how you have antigen presenting cells which use their MHC class um, proteins to present antigen to cells. Now you have then T cell receptors which go up to the MHC complex and recognize if it's a match to them. So this is what we're going to expand on today because this is how the adaptive response starts.
it starts with an interaction between a presentation of an antigen and a T-cell receptor that recognizes it. So here, you've got an image that shows that you have an antigen that's processed by an antigen-presenting cell and put back out on the surface as part of an MHC complex. And what we'll learn today is there are different types of T-cells that interact with that antigen on the surface of the antigen-presenting cell, and then it sets off a whole set of processes that in the end end up creating a humoral response with antibodies from your B cells. We'll learn that plasma cells come from B cells. And then you also get a cellular response that end up from your T cells in their various types attacking cells that may have invader inside of them. So let's go into more detail about that. Now, I mentioned then that you've got these proteins or molecules on the surface of the antigen presenting cells that kind of help communicate with other types of cells. Now we do have other markers on the surface of our cells that are actually our own antigens. So antigens don't always have to be a description for an invader or a foreign substance. We have antigens on our own cell surfaces that mark us as self. And they also are sometimes used as a way for us to tell the different types of cells apart when we're trying to understand not only what's going on or when for some reason we need to measure how many of each type of cell you have. Now on the surface of many of these white blood cells, we have a protein called a cluster designation, or sometimes you will see them described as clusters of differentiation. But usually it's just abbreviated CD with some sort of number behind it. So these are something that help us classify and potentially separate different kinds of cells. So the way that we learned how some of this stuff actually happens in the adaptive system is we had to initially separate out the different kinds of cells and learn about their roles. So what we found was these different lymphocytes, because we have so many different kinds, they have different markers on their cell surface. So for example, T cells have a marker on their surface called CD3. They are CD3 positive cells. And what we now know as well is that this CD3 molecule actually is part of the T cell receptor in those cells. Then we know there are different types of T cells, which we'll talk more about in a second. We know that in order to tell what role that T cell plays, we have to look for other CD markers. For example, we'll talk about CD4 positive cells or CD8 positive cells. Then that tells us what their job is when they function as a T cell. So you may see things in the book that talk about CD3 positive, CD4 positive. Excuse me, that's a particular type of T cell. Or it may refer to CD3 positive, CD8 positive. That is another particular type of T cell. But B cells don't have a CD3 marker. Instead, most of them have one or both of either CD19 or CD20. And so that helps us separate them out from T cells. 
because they have different markers on their surface. And then the natural killer cells that fall under the lymphocyte heading, but have a bigger role in innate defenses, those have a totally different CD marker on their surface. And what this does is it allows us to separate them out. So for example, if we need to know how many CD4 positive cells you have compared to CD8 positive cells, we could isolate all of the CD3 positive cells by using an antibody for them, and then create a tag for either CD8 or CD4, which makes them show up differently when you use a specific type of laboratory test. And you're thinking, why would I ever care how many CD4 and how many CD8 cells? Well, it turns out this type of testing is one of the primary ways, for example, we learn about the progression of HIV into AIDS. Because the HIV virus infects CD4 positive cells called helper T cells, when the number of CD4 positive cells drops, we know that that person is progressing from just being HIV positive to having full-blown AIDS. So we do use this in laboratory diagnosis of different diseases. So let's go more into depth on these T cells, and then we'll eventually get to these others, because I mentioned there are several types of T cells. Now I have, if you've taken patho before, you know I sort of have an analogy for the T cells. In fact, for most of our lymphocytes, I have an analogy. I kind of think of them as a mobster family, and this kind of helps me um, to understand the differences between the two. And I was able to find this kind of funny image um, and this may be dating myself a little bit, but um, if you've ever heard of Mr. T, um, this kind of is a, a funny analogy for the T cell, that there's a Mr. T cell who pities the fool expresses non-self antigen. So that's kind of what we're going for here, is thinking of lymphocytes and specifically T cells as being these sort of brutes, these guys who run around like a crime family and maybe um, kill cells, they kind of isolate and take care of foreigners. And that's exactly what we're going to describe here. You've got four different main types of T cells and they each have a different role, right? In the T cell crime family. Now, think about this if you've ever seen um, the Godfather movies or the Sopranos TV series. Okay, you have these sort of traditional roles in a crime family, right? You've got the boss, and it turns out that's what our CD4 positive T helper cells do. This is the boss. This is the Don, right? Don Corleone, right? This is the guy who runs the whole outfit. He gives the jobs, he instructs the other ones to do. In fact, that's the helper, that's kind of why they got that name, that is their main role, is directing the other cells in the system. Now, one of the other cells that they direct is the hitman, right? The guy who gets the assignment to go out and kill somebody. This is the CD8 positive, what are called cytotoxic T cells. These are sometimes abbreviated CTL, cytotoxic lymphocytes. Now these are really important because once they're introduced 
to their target, their job is to kill it. But the boss or the Don has to first tell them who their target is. This is what makes them different than a natural killer cell. The whole reason that natural killer cells were given that name is they do it naturally. They don't need instructions from anybody else in order to know who to kill. They just look for those MHC class one molecules that are abnormal and then they take those out. So in this case, they have to be introduced to the target to be told by the boss or the Don who to kill. That's what makes them different than a natural killer cell. Now, there's always this guy though in the crime family who's like, hey, relax, right? Hey, take it easy, okay? He is the guy who slows things down. Their job is to regulate or suppress the immune system. Your whole body is checks and balances, right? If you didn't control the immune system in some way, there's a good possibility that you would end up attacking yourself. And it turns out that's precisely what happens in autoimmune diseases. One of the biggest things that's being studied as far as causes of autoimmune diseases is problems in the T regulatory cells that don't suppress the system from attacking your self antigens. Okay, now these have a whole set of cells, much like I'll talk about with the helpers in a second, that need to learn how to suppress each of the different components of the immune system. So we'll go through more of those in a second. And then sometimes you've got, you know, the Don's retired father who doesn't run the family anymore, okay? But he kind of gives advice. He sits in the corner of the Italian restaurant and says, you know, in my day, this is how we did things. He remembers, okay? That's their main job, your memory cells are the ones that give you long-term immunity. Once they have been introduced to an antigen, they will remember it for years to come so that the next time you come across that cell or that antigen or bacteria, fungus, virus, whatever it is, you will mount a very quick response that hopefully will keep you from getting that infection again. And that's actually the whole idea behind vaccines. Now, you notice when I have these listed, I don't have a CD next to them. And that's because they may have different CD markers on their surface, depending on which cell they came from. You have T regulatory cells that come from any of a number of these, or memory cells, or even B, B memory cells that come from you know other cells before them that have different CD markers. So that's why we don't have um, CD markers next to the list here. So. This is gonna get a little bit complicated. I'm gonna to try to help you keep these straight because as if having this many type of T cells wasn't enough, we also have whole subsets of each of these. So just among your CD4 positive cells, we have a whole bunch of different ones of those. So this mobster family tree becomes quite complicated quite fast. And what's quite interesting is many of these weren't even discovered until relatively recently. To be quite honest, when I learned many of these, we only really knew about these two. And even then it was kind of just um, beginning to be studied. Many of these 
were only recently discovered and that's why they're not even talked about in your textbook all that much. So of all of your CD4 positive T helper cells, you potentially have cells that take different forms depending on what cytokines are present in the environment when they're activated. And the reason that you have different cytokines producing different versions of T helper cells is that some T helper cells have a role with either helping your intracellular parasites to prompt your cytotoxic cells like virus infected cells or sometimes you have parasites bacteria or viruses that remain outside of cells and they need a different mechanism to take care of them so that's one of the reasons we take what are called naive cd4 positive cells and let them mature into one that is specifically meant to address a particular pathogen so what happens here is you have this naive cd4 positive cells cell which means it hasn't found its mate remember i said that each of these cells is made with modular design to be specific to an antigen and it floats around your whole life and may never find its mate but when it does it then can differentiate or mature into one of these depending on which cytokines were given off usually by the infected cell or macrophage. If you have interferon, remember we talked about that from the innate system, if you have interferon being released and interleukin-12, this naive CD4 helper cell becomes a Th1 cell, a T helper version one. And do you remember what particular thing is associated with interferon? Often, it's when you have viruses. So this type of T helper cell is most helpful against intracellular parasites. And don't assume parasites means like a worm. We're talking viruses here. And this hopefully is easy to understand when you remember that one of your cellular defenses against viruses is interferon. So when a macrophage or infected viral or infected cell with a virus starts to give off interferon, that tells your CD4 helper cells nearby that they need to mount a defense with Th1 cells. Now, what if a cell, um, a macrophage, for example, is interacting with maybe some extracellular parasites, maybe a fungus or a um, extracellular parasite like a worm, a helminth. In those cases, the environment might contain interleukin-4. And then in those cases, your naive CD4 helper cell becomes a Th2 cell. And it, so what's listed underneath each of these is the things that they release. They release all these interleukins. And those are responsible then for producing your allergies, asthma, and the Th4, or I'm sorry, Th2 cells are what control parasites and extracellular pathogens. Now those are what I knew about in addition to your T regulatory cells. Usually what happens is when you get these changes to Th1 and Th2, you will also get some that become T regulatory cells and T follicular helpers. That's what this means. FH's follicular helpers. 
These are really important for stimulating B cells. This is where you get a link between your T cells and your B cells. You do need help from T cells in order to get B cells to start maturing. This is where you get what is called class switching. It encourages your B cells to become plasma cells and make different kinds or different classes of antibodies. We'll talk more about that in a second. But this is your link between your T cells and your B cells. So you do have some of these forming from each time you get a naive CD4 positive T cell who has found its mate or antigen that matches its receptors on its surface. What are newer discoveries, relatively recent, are what are called Th17, Th22, and Th9 cells. Now I'm not too worried that you have a really big understanding of these because these quite honestly are probably within the past decade, maybe even five years that we've found these. What we do think might be of particular importance in autoimmunity is what is called the Th17 cell. This is a T helper cell that does help in defense against pathogens, transplants, and cancers, but probably one of the biggest areas of research right now is its influence on autoimmunity because it releases a really potent inflammatory interleukin called IL-17. That's why it's called TH-17 because it releases interleukin-17. This is a highly inflammatory interleukin that might be part, along with problems with T regulatory cells, part of what causes autoimmunity. So these T regulatory cells, as we'll talk about in a second, is what hopefully helps you maintain tolerance of your self antigens. So perhaps the combination of issues with these two cells is what leads to autoimmune disease. Now your newly discovered Th22 and Th9 are named because they release that particular interleukin that they're named after. They also seem to have a relationship with tolerance or autoimmunity. So we know that Th2 seems to be part of your barrier defense in your skin, and that Th9 might be one of the reasons that some people will develop severe allergies because they're related to tolerance in your body. So I would say stay tuned about some of these other um, cells because perhaps by the time you're out of college or if you sort of stay interested in this topic or um, look more into it in the future, you may find quite new information on some of these cells as we get more research done in this area. Now that we have an idea of what types of T helper cells there are, I want to put this in context of the other T cells before we begin to talk about the others. So these are the ones that I just mentioned, okay? Briefly, I mentioned T regulatory cells, and I will talk more about those in a second. But these CD4 Th1 cells and Th2 cells are really important for getting the various parts of your adaptive immune system started. So you do have a connection back to the innate system. Your Th1 cells, which if you recall, are mainly responsible for getting some of your exterior um, I'm sorry, interior antigens. These are things like viruses that are already inside of cells. 
one of the things that helps with that is you get interleukins and cytokines released from Th1 cells that activate more macrophages and natural killers. Particularly, remember, natural killers then will take care of virally infected cells. Now, they also help B cells make more IgG production. You have other forms of bacteria that may be affected by Th1 cells and Th2 that help in particular with IgE and IgA production and that comes from B cells that are prompted to switch to those from this. So again, they're a little bit related and these have a big role with helminth and some extracellular bacteria in addition to that. Now, what we haven't talked about then is your T8, CD8 positive cytotoxic cells. Those are ones that become particularly important because your already infected cells with viruses need some sort of way to take care of them. This is where CD8 positive cytotoxic cells come into play. Now, don't confuse these with natural killer cells. They are not quite the same, although they do have some similar tasks in the way that they function. One of the things that makes them quite different from natural killer cells is your CD8 positive cytotoxic cells have a different mechanism. They have a different mechanism for recognition of antigen. Now remember your natural killer cells from the last lecture. They have two different receptors on their surface. What's called an inhibitory receptor and an activating receptor. And when you have a healthy cell, what they end up doing is they don't get anything that's binding with the activating receptor, but the MHC class one will bind with the inhibitory receptor, which blocks the kill signal that would come up if they were activating this receptor. But then if it was an unhealthy cell, either a virally infected cell or a cancer cell that stops producing MHC class one, those would potentially have something on their surface that would activate the activating receptor and be missing an MHC class one or have something inside of the MHC class one that's foreign that would not then inhibit. This then would tell them you need to kill this cell. That's how the natural killer cell worked. Your cytotoxic lymphocyte or CD8 positive cell works with a T cell receptor because it is a T cell, not a natural killer cell. These use the TCR to look for the non-self antigen. And what makes them different from a natural killer cell is they have to be introduced by an antigen presenting cell first. In other words, they are sort of given that information from the antigen presenting cell or maybe a T helper cell that tells them what their focuses. Remember, this is the hitman, but he has to get instructions from the Don, from the boss, the helper cell first. So here, if it comes across a healthy cell and it finds an MHC, and here they're using a, an old term called HLA, the MHC um, 
protein was originally called HLA, human lymphocyte, I'm sorry, human leukocyte antigen when it was first discovered because it was discovered on leukocytes, but we now call it MHC, so don't be confused by that. So here, they're looking for that on the MHC class one, and they're saying, all right, this looks normal, not gonna do anything about that. But what if it was a virally infected cell? And that MHC had a viral antigen inside. Here, because it has first been primed by either an APC or helper cell, it will then recognize this and actually then uses some of the same killing strategies, even if it has a different mechanism for recognition. It releases some of the same things that natural killers do, like perforin and granzyme B, which kind of poke holes in the surface of the cell and make it lice. Perforin actually has a structure similar to one of the proteins in the complement system, which if you recall makes an attack complex, membrane attack complex that pokes a hole. So that's why you get some of the same types of things happening to a cell that has been introduced to porphyrin as you do with a complement membrane attack complex. It pokes a hole in that cell and that ends up causing it to lice. Those are what it means by destructive enzymes that are being released. But what you end up here though is a very similar type of endpoint. An abnormal virus or infected cell will be destroyed. It's just a different mechanism for recognition between the natural killer and the T8 cytotoxic cell. So hopefully this doesn't get out of hand, but what keeps this from happening to your own cells? What keeps your cytotoxic CD8 cells or natural killer cells from doing this to your own tissue? Well, this is where your T regulatory response comes in. This is your balance, right? You have a pro-inflammatory response from all of these other cells that are releasing cytokines that promote inflammation and killing. You have to balance that with some anti-inflammatory cytokines, and that's where your T regulatory cell comes in. It releases two very important cytokines that are pretty potent, called interleukin-10 and transforming growth factor beta. These will help your cells, some of them, to move from becoming an effector cell to a regulatory cell. And what happens here then is when some of those things are released, they will make a corresponding T regulatory cell for each type of what are called effector cell in your system. So this ends up then suppressing some of those mechanisms that are going to occur from those effector cells, leading to what's called self-tolerance. This also helps limit the inflammation when you have chronic infection. Now, usually an acute response is totally normal and necessary to fight off the invader, prevent the spread of infection. But in some cases that inflammation continues either longer than it should or because there is continuing antigen or irritation present. Now you do then have, um, according to recent research, that you have 
an equivalent T reg for each what are called T effector cell. Now don't be confused by that. That's not a new T cell. That is just the general umbrella term for all of your different T cells as a group. They have an effect, T cells that have an effect. This doesn't include your naive ones that don't react to anything because they haven't found their mate. This is the term for any of your T cells that have found a mate and are activated. Now this is again a little bit different because more recent research has kind of led us to understand this. Um, and all of these then have the possibility to release this anti-inflammatory substance called IL-10. Again, things may change in the future um, because this is such new research. You may find that if you stay interested in this area that some of this um, has expanded knowledge and more information in the future. Now that fourth type of T cell that I mentioned that's really important for long-term immunity is your memory cells. Now this again has changed recently. We used to think that memory cells didn't form until after antigen clearance. We're now starting to think that this may happen earlier, that this may even happen during the fight with that particular antigen, that they make a kind of like a, um, a career choice. At some point in the differentiation, they are asked to become one or the other, either the effector or the memory line because many of the effectors seem to die after the fight with that antigen. But the memory cells then live for years in your system. So this is kind of an important part of what allows you to hopefully not get sick every time you come across that particular antigen again. But these aren't present from the very beginning. In early life, you don't have a whole lot of memory cells because you haven't been exposed to very many antigens in order to produce them, in order to actually make memory cells from recognized antigens because in the first few years, all those antigens are brand new. But that means then when you look at pathogen susceptibility, this is why children then often, particularly in the first you know, zero to 10 years have a higher rate of infection and illness than as we get older. That pathogen susceptibility goes lower as we get older because of the fact that your circulating and memory T cells all end up going up. It's only at the end of life as you have aging, the term called immunosenescence, that your susceptibility goes up. But what's interesting here is it's not probably because your memory cells go down, it's usually because you're not able to make as many new T cells to recognize those new antigens, okay? So you don't, I shouldn't say make new T cells because all those ones that have been pre-programmed are already in existence. I should say, um, not able to respond with the existing T cells. So we'll talk about this part a little bit more at the end of the lecture because we'll talk about how age actually is something that affects your immunity, but it's not altogether bad. In some cases, you have a better defense against things you've seen before. It's usually only the new things that you're not so good at. So this would only be new antigens that you aren't as good at. What happens is, 
regardless of when you find these mates for your existing lymphocytes and B cells, you end up with some of them deciding, kind of like I said, making a career choice to be the memory cells. This is the Don's father in the corner who remembers everything. What's important about this is then the next time you come into contact with that, they either in your lymph um, lymphoid organs like your spleen and your lymph nodes or in the periphery or in barrier tissues will see it right away and immediately begin to produce antibodies and effector cells against that and hopefully stop you from getting that infection again because you've already seen it and they remember how to deal with it and they can do it much more quickly than the first time. So this is how the secondary response works. And you'll notice I didn't go into crazy detail about the different types of memory cells because that also is a relatively new thing. And I'm not gonna worry too much about you knowing the difference between those. Knowing the difference between the different types of T helper cells is a little more important because they play different roles. We're not gonna go into the different roles of the memory cells. So I put it there for information purposes, but I won't really ask that you know the differences between the memory cells. What I do think is important for you to understand though is how critical the memory cells are for a speedy second response when you see that pathogen again. The first time you end up coming across something and it finds its corresponding leukocyte mate, you get what's called clonal expansion of that white blood cell only that recognized that pathogen only. The other ones won't bother to grow or expand because they didn't find their mate yet. And then once they dealt with that infection, a few of them stay around as memory cells. So this first part of the infection, the first time you get it and you sensitize those white blood cells, this is slow. It takes a long time for them to find that match and then begin to make all of these daughter cells that recognize that one pathogen. This takes time, usually one to two weeks before you have um, an immunity towards that particular pathogen. This is actually the whole idea behind vaccines. And if you got a flu shot, for example, you are told that you won't have immunity probably for another one to two weeks. And that's because that's how long it takes for that process of your cells to find that antigen that you were injected with in the flu shot and make all of those cells that respond to that pathogen only and then leave some memory cells behind. So what happens then is maybe you got your flu shot in October and then sometime in January, you're exposed to the flu and this next time, hopefully if it was the correct strain that you were vaccinated with, you will have a very quick response because it has seen it before. The response is larger, which means you have more cells and more antibodies, and it's faster. It doesn't take nearly as long. So it's gonna look more like this if you laid these on top of each other. It's much faster and a much larger response to that same antigen that you saw the first time. This is the whole idea behind that secondary response and the idea behind vaccines. Now, you do have, um, in addition to the T and B cells, you have natural killer cells. 
So before talking about B cells, I want to mention the natural killer cells because they many times are a go-between between the innate system and your um, acquired system. But these tend to be thought of as part of the innate system and sometimes a bridge between the two. Now, we did talk briefly about natural killer cells in the innate system, but there is one type of T cell, before I start talking about B cells, that actually has properties of both T cells and natural killer cells. It's called the NK T cell. Again, this gets very confusing because this is not the same as a CD8 positive cytotoxic cell. It's not the same as a natural killer cell. It's a really unique cell that is sort of new in the discovery of different types of, of lymphocytes. And it kind of confused people for a while because it has a T cell receptor. And it has the ability to release cytokines similar to your Th1 helper and Th2 helper, but it can kill the way that a natural killer or cytotoxic T cell can. So this is a very unique cell, and that's really all I'm gonna say about it because we know less about this and gamma delta cells than we do about your T helper cells. Um, so I just mention it for completeness sake again, but um, we, we don't know a ton about it other than it expresses the T cell receptor, releases cytokines kind of like some of your helpers, but yet acts like a natural killer. Then there's another one that usually makes up only about 5% of your T cells. Again, this is a reason that I'm putting it here is because these are actually additional types of T cells that have been identified recently, but that they function similar to the innate system. This cell is called a gamma delta cell. Now, most T cells 95% of them have a T cell receptor that is made up of two chains, an alpha chain and a beta chain. However, 5% of these T cells, for some reason, have a different type of structure to their T cell receptor. They're made up of a gamma chain and a delta chain. These gamma delta T cells have a different location. They tend to be found more in your barrier tissues. So they may have a function as part of your barrier surveillance, like skin and mucosa, your epithelial tissues. And what we're thinking in terms of their function is they may help with lipid and non-protein antigens. So many of your T cell receptors respond to protein antigen, and many of your antibodies can respond to either carbohydrates or proteins. But the function potentially of these gamma delta cells is recognizing things that aren't detected by T cells or antibodies from B cells, like lipids and non-protein antigens. So there's a lot more that we need to learn about these. But again, I mentioned them for completeness sake because you may come across information about them at some point in the future as we learn more about them. But these are both types of T cells 
They do have T cell receptors, but they function a little bit differently than your T4 helpers or um, your T cytotoxic cells, T regulatory cells, and T memory cells. So as if we didn't have enough to think about in terms of lymphocytes, the other lymphocyte family that we need to discuss, the other sort of maybe um, part of the immunomobster family is your B cells. Your B cells, if you recall, are part of humoral immunity. And another way you can think about that is antibody-mediated immunity. These are what give you long-term immunity in addition to memory cells because they make antibodies. Now, memory cells are a good way to keep cells ready to respond to invaders. But what if you want to be able to neutralize an invader and there aren't in tissues where there aren't any cells available? Antibodies can be then soluble in the tissues and the fluids to address those antigens that come in as a match to them. And these also can remain in circulation for years. These are really interesting then because you have the ability similar to T cells to recognize a particular antigen but not expand to react to them until they're activated. So here, recall that they usually have a CD19 and or CD20 marker on their surface. That's how we differentiate them from your T cells. But in addition, they have what's called a BCR, a B cell receptor. So this is kind of analogous to a T cell receptor. But what's quite interesting about this is it also, like a T cell receptor, is specific to only one antigen when it's made by modular design, but it's kind of like a test batch of antibody. What happens is it makes a protein that is bound by the tail and then that sticks out of your cell membrane what we call sort of fishing for antigen that matches it. And then what happens is if that B cell receptor, which looks like an antibody on the surface of a B cell, if it binds with its match, it begins to release cytokines that then call a helper cell over. That helper cell uses its T cell receptor and says, okay, we need to mount a greater response to this. And it begins to release cytokines. And these cytokines will help clonal expansion of this B cell that is only specific to this. So you end up producing more B cells that convert into plasma cells. Plasma cells are the ones that make antibody. So it's kind of an elegant way to do this. You don't want plasma cells out in the circulation all the time because we don't need antibody to every single antigen that we're capable of fighting because that's like millions of antigen. What we really only need is antibody to the things that we have recently encountered. 
So by having this system where the T helper cell spurs on that production, you have a way to release the message that they've seen what they're meant to see, their mate or their match, and then the T helper cell sends out signals that say, okay, go ahead and become a plasma cell. This is where some of your T follicular helpers come into play. Some of your T helper one and T helper two that help make different kind of antibody depending on the type of organism that they found. These plasma cells then will make a whole bunch of antibody and rather than keeping it on their surface the way these B cell receptors are, they go ahead and spit them out and make them soluble then in the system, in your bloodstream, in your fluid, in your tissues. And then some of them decide they make that career choice to remember, to become memory B cells. Okay, so let's look a little bit more at the possibility of B cell subsets. Much like your different types of memory cells that I mentioned, but didn't want you to absolutely know, this is something newer they've discovered too. Apparently there are different types of B cells that exist. You have what are called follicular B cells that are mainly in your lymphoid tissues or germinal centers. These lymphoid tissues is where you get many of your long-lived plasma cells that make the types of antibodies that stay in your system for a long time. But out in the tissues is where you have what are called marginal zone or B1 cells that make the primary antibody for short-term attack, which is IgM. And I'll talk about the different types of antibodies here in a second. So this again is just to kind of be complete. There are different types of B cells in the same way there are different types of T helper cells. But what I would rather you know more about is the different types of antibodies because they have a different purpose and they have a different location usually. The basic structure of all antibodies kind of looks like a Y. And this Y is made up of two heavy chain proteins. These are these parts, okay? and two light chains. The light chains are these ones on this side. Now, when these all come together to make this structure, it turns out that this bottom part that's all in blue is all the same in every antibody you make. That's why it is called the constant region, abbreviated FC. This top part in red is variable which means that it is made specific to one antigen. This is called the variable region, or FAB for antigen binding region. This is where you get a specificity for one antigen only. What's great about this bottom part being constant is it turns out that macrophages have a receptor for FC, the bottom part here, on their surface. So if they're floating around and they find an antibody in circulation that has an antigen attached to it, they can bind to it and then phagocytize, which will get rid of that antigen then. So there are different types of antibodies but this is the same basic structure. And the reason you have different types is they play different roles. What they all do 
in the end is provide a tag or a kiss of death. They can't kill anything by themselves. What they do is sort of tag it for destruction. It's some other organism, or not other organism, some other cell that actually does the killing. A macrophage, a neutrophil, um, complement, some other structure ends up in the end taking care of it. They may be able to neutralize it or isolate it, but primarily their function is to neutralize by binding with the antigen. And sometimes that's quite effective. For example, if it's binding a virus, the place where it binds could be in the, um, the binding site of that virus where it's supposed to enter a cell. So by combining with it there, it can't bind with a cell anymore. Or it could be that it is a tag or ops opsonin because opsonization is what allows a phagocyte to do its job, or it could tag it for complement. If you remember, there were three ways that you could activate complement. And one of those was by using antibody-mediated activation of complement. So this is, again, one of the ways that you have interaction between the innate system and the acquired system. So let's look at those different types and forms of this antibody so that we can understand how they each have a different role. There are five main types of antibodies, sometimes called immunoglobulins, which basically means immune protein and usually is abbreviated Ig. So in the end, you put on some letter on the end of that abbreviation to determine which antibody type we're talking about. Now, the first antibody that is produced in a reaction is called IgM. And the reason it's really good as a first antibody being produced is it has 10 binding sites. It is what is called a pentamer. It is what you see here. IgM takes five of those Y-shaped antibodies and puts them all together at the tail and makes like a star shape or a snowflake shape, which means that they could bind anywhere along here. And one of the other reasons this is highly effective as a first produced antibody is it is fantastic at activating complement. By activating complement, it's possible that they would then either allow that antigen to be phagocytized, or if it's a bacteria, for example, or a um, virally infected cell, it could poke a hole in those cells and cause them to lice. Now, the reason these are really good at activating complement is when they have this large of a number of antigen binding sites next door, it allows the um, complement to attach and cross-link, which is exactly what needs to happen in order for the antibody-mediated activation of complement to occur. Now, IgG is the most common in the bloodstream, and it is what gives you your long-term immunity.
So when you first start making IgM, you usually only make it for a very short period of time after that antigen is encountered. In fact, we can use that as a test. For example, if you had maybe mono, in order to determine if you have antibodies because you recently had mono or because you had it years ago, we can look for IgM. If IgM is not present, then you probably didn't have it recently. You had mono maybe years ago, you might have IgG in your system. That is the one that sticks around for a long time. And there are several different kinds. You have IgG1, which is really good in prompting phagocytosis as an opsonin, or Ig3, IgG3, which is really great at activating natural killer cells and complement. But what I'd rather you realize about this one is that it is considered what, it, what we think of as the prototype antibody. It's the one that when we think about um, antibodies is probably the most common. In fact, sometimes it's called gamma globulin. We can try to prevent infection in people or boost the immune system by actually injecting them with gamma globulin, which is a whole slurry of different types of IgG that have been harvested from other people. What's also important about this is it crosses the placenta. So remember how I said that babies and children don't have a whole lot of immunity because they haven't been exposed to that much in the world yet? Well, Mother Nature, or God, actually set this up so that mothers help out their infants for the first few years of their life by giving them some of their own IgG. Mothers have been exposed to all kinds of antigens throughout their life. So by giving their infant some IgG while they're in utero, it helps protect them for a little while from the things they haven't yet seen until their immune system catches up. So that's actually a really important part of passing immunity from mother to child. That's not the only way that a mother can pass immunity to her child. There's also the possibility she could give the baby IgA. IgA is made up of two units that are connected at the tail to make four binding sites. It looks like this. Now, this one has a special protein because some of IgA actually ends up in your secretions or in your mucous membranes called secretory IgA. You put a little S in front of it when it's found in your secretions. This actually is the most common in the body because it is found in your mucus and you have a ton of mucous membranes. I don't know if you remember from the first lecture I said that, or in the last lecture, I said that you have something like 400 square meters of mucous membranes. That's why this is actually the most predominant antibody in your body, but the most prominent one in your blood is IgG. Now, this one isn't very good at responding to complement at all, but what it does do is kind of neutralize anything that it comes across in your secretions from your environment. So it is found mostly in barrier tissues and mucous membranes. And one of the ways that it helps your um, infants be protected for a little while is it is found in breast milk. This is why breastfeeding is so important because we also think that there is a connection between breastfeeding and allergies, that breastfeeding reduces allergies by allowing your immune system then to have some help 
while it is learning to react to antigens that the infant comes into contact with. So this is, for a long time there, it, I often wonder if this is a connection as to why we have so many more um, allergies these days to foods, is that there was a little while where it wasn't popular to breastfeed infants. That formula became you know, more of a fad. And what we now know is that any children then who weren't breastfed didn't get some of that IgA that normally crosses from the mother to the baby in breast milk to help protect them and um, kind of tide over their immune system while they're learning to address new antigens. Now, speaking of allergies, IgE is kind of an interesting um, hybrid. It looks very similar to IgG, but it has an extra little part of its tail. These are, sorry about that, these are what we find in allergies. We also find these in parasitic infections. And the reason that we tend to see these in those cases is that IgE, the FC region, that tail part binds to mast cells. Now, I don't know if you remember what mast cells do. They're a more mature tissue version of basophils. And the little granules inside of those basophils that stain a dark blue, they release histamine. Histamine is that cytokine that when produced in large amounts can either cause inflammation in a minor allergic response or anaphylaxis. If you have massive degranulation of those mast cells, you could end up with such inflammation that they go into anaphylactic shock. So this is what you could measure and find in people who are having an allergic response. It would also be elevated in somebody who has a parasitic infection. And I usually mean by that a parasitic worm or a, um, a type of protozoan infection. And the last one here on this list is IgD. Now, what is interesting about this is both back when I learned about this and even now, we don't know as much about IgD as we do about the other four types of antibodies. What we do see is that they are found often on B cell surfaces. And what they might be is one of those prototype antibodies, not prototype antibodies, um, one of those practice antibodies that is made that kind of functions like a B cell receptor. Um, so we don't tend to talk about IgD all that much because it's not found out with a primary role in the system. It may be what serves as the B cell receptor on the surface um, that initially combines with the antigen and then allows it to progress into a plasma cell once it presents that information and releases cytokines to the T cells. So. Again, something that we may learn more about in the future. So what do you think? Do you have it all straight? We've talked about T cells, which have helper cells, cytotoxic cells, T regulatory and memory cells. And then among your T helper cells, we had a whole bunch of different kinds, Th1, Th2, Th17, Tfh, T17, T22, T9. And then we had your NK T cells, your gamma delta T cells. Then I talked about B cells, different B memory cells. 
your B cells and plasma cells and subsets of those. So could you make a family tree? So could you sort of make an immunomobster family tree and keep them all straight? This might be something that I would encourage you to do as you're studying, because if it helps you sort of keep them straight, you might be able to make a family tree and post it somewhere so that as you're studying for that first test to try to keep all the different types of cells and their jobs straight, you could glance at it and sort of quiz yourself. So that's just something that might be a creative way to study if you're a visual person. I'm a visual learner, so I tend to try to make pictures. It's also why I tend to have more pictures and words on a lot of my slides, because if that's how you work, then you might be able to create a picture that would allow you to go through and sort of keep track of the different parts of your immunomobster family and see if you can figure out what they do and study periodically as you glance, maybe pick a different cell each week or each day before that test um, and go over what it does. Now, the last part of the chapter for this um, module had to do with the other factors that affect the immune function. Because from here on out, we start to look at exercise specifically affecting either the number of white blood cells or the different components of either the innate, acquired, or mucosal immune system. But that's not the only thing that either decreases or improves immunity. There are a ton of other what are called confounding factors and studies that could either increase or decrease that depending on a person's situation. One of those is their age. Now let's look at both ends of the spectrum. Because children haven't been exposed to as many antigens, they have less existing immunity. That's one of the reasons they get sick more often. If you remember in the very first module, we talked about the common cold, the most common infection out there, and that a healthy adult might get two to four a year, but that children get much more than that. They may get six to eight a year. And that number decreases as they get older. Now, aging has an effect as well. What happens here is Remember, you have all these naive T cells that already have a specificity to an antigen, but what they're not able to do is when they come across a new antigen, they don't respond as quickly. Their ones they've already responded to in the past is still good. So we can't in general say that immunity decreases because that's too broad of a description because their immunity to old antigens is still highly effective. What it is is new antigens that they're not as good at addressing. We also have a difference in immunity depending on your gender or your sex. We know that hormonal changes in females affect immunity. And this actually becomes quite a big source of frustration for some women. We know that the changes in hormones that occur with the menstrual cycle and with pregnancy can predispose you to infection at certain times of the cycle. So what in this, I'll be quite honest, there is a very short section of this in the textbook. And if you look at the research, this um, is changing all the time. We are learning more and more about this. There are some things in your textbook that I'm not quite sure are still believed in the research because the textbook is a few years old. Um, but I did look into the research and what the possibility or theory is right now is that the changes that are occurring in the menstrual cycle are related to pregnancy in the sense that this is all in preparation for pregnancy. 
And during pregnancy, what we don't want to happen is for the mother's immune system to attack the fetus or to attack the sperm before the fertilization even occurs. So what tends to be the theory now is that somewhere around the time of ovulation that you get a shift in your T helper response so that you get a suppression of cell mediated immunity. And that is meant to keep from attacking sperm and fetus should pregnancy occur. Which means that if you don't end up getting pregnant and you continue in your menstrual cycle to the menstrual phase, then there's a possibility then shortly before or during someone's menstrual period that they're more susceptible to infection. And some women will say that this definitely occurs to them, that they're more likely to get a cold or the flu or other illnesses right before or during their period. And that is because if you were to get pregnant, the idea would be that by suppressing the immune system, specifically the cell-mediated response during that time, that it would make pregnancy and keeping the pregnancy more likely. So in that sense, it's logical. What I'm not sure about that your textbook talks about is the specific changes between estrogen and progesterone. Because what I think they've found since the book was printed is that estrogen and progesterone have different influences on different types of responses. So just saying, I think the book says that estrogen improves immunity. We can't um, necessarily say that because we are seeing that it affects immunity differently. So here they have more recently found that it affects the Th2 response, which maybe is different than the Th1 response because it seems to enhance humoral immunity in pregnancy. So just sort of, again, if that's a, something of interest to, to you or you stay um, interested in this going forward, you may find that research on this changes um, and as more things are discovered. Now, something we do know more about and probably know more anecdotally and are beginning to get a greater appreciation for in research is this idea of stress. And this is a really huge one in some of your chronic diseases that we didn't connect with immunity before, but we did know stress always seemed to affect. For example, we know stress has a big effect on the cardiovascular system. We know that stress has a big effect on autoimmune disease because it tends to exacerbate them in many ways. So what we know about immunity specifically is that the type of stress and the length of stress is what determines what happens in the immune system. And by type, I'm talking about the differences between psychological and physical stressors, because you could put exercise under that category. Exercise is more of a physical stressor. And that, this is where it ties back into that very first module. The length of time that you are under either psychological or physical stress also determines the immune effects. What we do now know is that acute stresses actually could improve the immune system. Acute stressors may upregulate, or in other words, increase the strength of your immune system probably because they've found that you get an increase in secretory IgA. Remember, that's the antibody that is found mainly in your mucous membranes, in your barrier tissues that help to fight off some of the things that you're encountering in your environment. We also know that acute stress 
seems to increase natural killer cell activity. Again, that's a great thing. Remember the natural killer cells are what help you fight off viral infections by attacking and killing virally infected cells and cancer. So this is another reason that exercise could actually help prevent cancers. And they've been finding that more and more, that women who exercise have a lower risk of breast cancer. People who exercise have a lower risk of colon cancer. So any more um, benefits of exercise that we could find and pass on to clients and patients and athletes are a good thing. Not just that it makes you healthier, that it actually could reduce risks of cancer. That could be a great thing. We do know, however, though, chronic stress may do the opposite. There seems to be a decrease in secretory IgA and natural killer cell activity if you have chronic long-term stress. And this actually works for both psychological stress and physical stressors, like exercise. This might be the reason that we saw with marathon runners, for example, or people who have very intense long-term training regimens. They may be more at increased risk of respiratory infections. This could be why. With a decrease of secretory IgA, they may not be as able to address those viruses they come into contact and breathe in in their environment. Why does this happen? Well, one of the things we know is that chronic stress releases glucocorticoids and catecholamines. Specifically, you get a release of cortisol, actually considered a stress hormone, and adrenaline and noradrenaline from your adrenal glands. We know cortisol is immunosuppressive when it is above normal levels, physiologic levels. In fact, we know the same thing happens for people who take steroids as a treatment for inflammation or asthma or infection, that they end up with a reduced, in particular, macrophage reaction when they're taking steroids. The same thing probably has happened in their body when they're stressed. The cortisol levels are causing an immunosuppressive effect. Now, catecholamines, this is a little more complicated, and I'm not going to ask that you know this, but just for completeness sake, things like adrenaline and noradrenaline increase a substance called cyclic AMP. Cyclic AMP inhibits the intracellular pathways that activate the immune response. There's a much more complicated way to explain that, but I'm not going to worry about you knowing that. Just understanding that it suppresses the immune system by messing up the pathways that your cells use inside of them to send signals. Now, there are also some other things that happen with stress. You end up with a pro-inflammatory response. You increase inflammation when you have chronic stress. And that's because there are certain substances released during stress that are increasing the inflammatory response, things like prolactin, those glucocorticoid receptors. So not only are you increasing the glucocorticoids like cortisol, but you increase the receptors so that the stuff that is released has more places to bind to and cause a greater effect. And you may have other things that increase inflammation like melatonin in a stress response, and leptin in a stress response, and this actually ends up being related to cardiovascular disease because we know it has a role in lipid metabolism. So what is interesting then is if you look at this from a physical stressor standpoint, this is where we can connect it to exercise. Acute stress seems to stimulate immunity, and that's actually what might be happening with acute exercise. It is an acute physical stressor. This is where we make a connection between that J-shaped curve and immunity, and therefore infection. So if you look at the top of this, as stress increases, 
In this case, we can connect physical stress with exercise. As stress or exercise increases, you end up, here's the J-shaped curve, right? Risk of infection is higher when you're sedentary, lower when you have some moderate stress or exercise, and then it goes up as you end up with more stress or more exercise. So what happens with your immune status related to this and why you get a, a changes, when your immune function is low, then your risk of infection is high. But as your immune function goes up, your risk of infection is low. So as that goes up, this goes down. And at some point they cross again. So where your infection risk is a J-shaped curve, the immune status with stress or exercise is an inverted J-shaped curve. So here, as you get to more intense levels of stress, you have a decrease in your immune status, which increases your risk of infection. So this is how it's all related, right back to that first module. So what we know here is there is an increase in hormone levels with chronic stress. We know that as you end up somewhere in the middle, you may get a benefit to the immune system and you may end up with metabolic changes that actually stimulate the immune system and reduce weight and increase fat metabolism and all those things that we know are positives about exercise. But with chronic stress, you actually will get the opposite. Rather than enhancing the immune system and metabolism, you could end up suppressing the immune system and increase your disease susceptibility. What makes this bad also is chronic stress then means that if the immune system is decreased with chronic stress and intense stress, you could decrease your responses to vaccination. That could be something that could help older adults. That could help people with chronic disease who we know are at greater risk of certain infections. For example, somebody with COPD or lung disease is at greater risk of complications from getting the flu. So if we can encourage them to exercise more, that means that the flu shot that they should hopefully get in order to avoid complications of the flu will be more um, effective. The vaccination works better if they're exercising to improve their immune system. The other issue with stress is it may reactivate latent infections that have been um, from your past. For example, herpes simplex virus and herpes zoster, which you may know better as shingles. We know for sure that shingles, which comes from the chickenpox virus, is reactivated in times of stress or illness. So guess what? If people exercise more and keep their immune system higher, they are less likely to reactivate the chickenpox virus and less likely to get shingles. So again, what more reason do we need to encourage people to exercise? Because it not only improves your health, but it may help your immune system. What we also know is chronic stress may be part of the inflammatory basis of many of our diseases that exist out there. Because with chronic stress, we get an increase in inflammatory markers that are associated with proliferation of inflammation in the immune system. IL-6, tumor necrosis alpha, are two big cytokines that are related to inflammation. CRP is a marker of inflammation, as well as fibrinogen. Both of those are used as tests in the laboratory to indicate inflammation in cardiovascular disease and in autoimmunity. What we don't know for sure, however, is whether this increase in inflammatory markers is actually due to stress itself 
or due to the fact that many people who are under intense stress fail to exercise or fail to eat well. This is kind of like the chicken and the egg thing. We know inflammation happens, but is it the stress that caused it or the fact that the stress makes them not exercise or eat well? We don't really know, but there's a good connection. Um, you can read about this on page 57 and 58 of your textbook between inflammation and mood. So we know that there tends to be a difference in some of these inflammatory markers in people who have chronic depression. And we know that, for example, when someone gets chemotherapy, that changes the inflammatory and cytokine markers in an individual's system, they tend to be more likely to get depression. So it's possible that some of these inflammatory markers are also having effect on your neuroendocrine system and that your nerve receptors have the ability to perceive these inflammatory markers and cytokines and they release more neurotransmitters or fail to release neurotransmitters or reuptake the transmitters that leads to symptoms of depression. So again, what more evidence do we need? Exercise could actually improve depression. Exercise could be a treatment for so many chronic conditions, including depression, and then have this benefit of increasing the immune system um, and its function. Now, two other really huge things that we know affect immunity and also affect other diseases is sleep and diet. We know that immune processes follow a circadian rhythm, just like many of your hormonal and endocrine processes. And this actually makes a lot of sense if you think about it. Research has found that your natural killer cells and your terminally differentiated, in other words, mature but naive T cells, they are most active, active and they peak in your system during the time when you're most likely to be exposed to antigens while you're awake and moving around in your environment. We know then that the naive, um, the ones that haven't yet been exposed, and central memory cells, they tend to peak at night because they then have the time to process the antigen that you were exposed to during your wake hours. This is where sleep quality and quantity come into play. If you get poor sleep or not enough sleep, you may not give your body long enough to process those antigens and you will not respond quickly enough to keep from getting an infection. So in other words, it slows your primary immune response, the first processing of an antigen the first time you've seen it. This early sleep is particularly important for the interaction between antigen-presenting cells and T cells because you get an improved flow through those um, lymphoid organs to allow the antigen-presenting cells and naive T cells to come together and find their mate. And this has been some um, more recent research. In fact, this is a 2015 study that found that people that get more than seven hours of sleep, they only have a 17.2% chance of getting the cold when they're exposed to the virus. Those who get between six and seven, they have a 22.7% of getting the cold when exposed to that virus. Those who get five to six, it goes up to 30%. Those people who get less than five hours of sleep, their chance of getting the common cold when exposed to a virus goes up to 45%. So it tr almost 
slightly less than triples from people who get at least seven hours of sleep. So we know that the immune system relies on those rest periods, particularly early sleep, to allow those naive T cells and antigen presenting cells to come together and mount a response more quickly. So this is why sleep is particularly important. Diet is also important because guess what? You need certain micronutrients to number one, be able to make your white blood cells in the first place. And number two, to do some of the essential metabolism to allow those cells to live. So you get things on both ends of the spectrum here, both overnutrition, especially that leads to obesity and vitamin deficiencies, and undernutrition, not taking in enough food to get the vitamins and minerals you need. They both have negative immune defects, effects. So what happens is in both of these cases, you be, could be getting a deficiency of certain micronutrients, usually vitamins and minerals that affect your ability to not only make the white blood cells in your bone marrow, but also have the essential metabolism to allow the immune response to, um, to occur. So what some people thought that sort of became popular um, and in some cases may still be popular is all right, well then let's just supplement with a whole bunch of vitamins and minerals and this kind of is where you got the pop-up of all these vitamin and, and supplement stores who promote all these things to help improve your health. But more is not always better. There are some micronutrients like vitamin E, some of your fat-soluble vitamins that you store in your body and can't get rid of, um, or some other things like zinc and some of your um, heavy metals that more can actually be negative or detrimental to your health. So this is why sort of being educated and learning about minerals and vitamins and substances that you use for supplements is really important so that you're not actually doing more damage than good. Some vitamins, it's okay to take a lot of because they're water soluble. Um, in other cases, they might not be and they could be detrimental to your immune system and your health in general. So there was a really neat graphic that I found, this idea of other factors in immunity um, that talks about the four pillars of immunity. That mindfulness, which is related to reducing stress and the relaxation, um, promoting the relaxation response. Nutrition, exercise, and sleep might be considered some of your four largest recommendations for improving immunity and reducing infection. So that's where you um, hopefully can tie in all of these things in terms of lifestyle and behaviors to immunity and then from here on out through the rest of the semester, we'll talk about how exercise particularly changes all these cells that we've just learned about and the different components in the immune system and how they function. So if you have any questions or you wanna go through creating that family tree um, and have any um, questions about it as you go through that, let me know.